Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available in the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. Today's podcast is a podcast I've been particularly looking forward to recording ever since we had it booked in a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be taking a deep dive into AIM listed Finu. It's a UK fintech company which is in the process of rolling out their plug-in overdraft. So we're going to be discussing what this means. We're going to be looking at the size of the market that they're addressing as well as their future plans. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by CEO Chris Sweeney as well as the founder Marco Sharblum. So Chris and Marco, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Jonathan. We're going to be discussing Finu, which trades on the ticker of bank on the AIM market here in London. We're going to be talking about the wider market. We're going to be talking about the problem that Finu is setting out to fix. But before we do that, if you may, gentlemen, give us a brief explanation of Finu Bank and also a little bit of background to yourselves and your experiences. So maybe, Marco, if we start with you, if you'll be able to give us a little bit of your background and how you came about to found Finu Bank. Um, thank you, Jonathan. Um, the, the idea has been brewing in my head for quite a long time, in fact. Uh, I, I built uh, an almost identical business before in the UK that was doing short-term overdraft-style lending. Um, that business wasn't a bank, but uh, it had certain issues throughout its nine-year uh, journey, whereby the biggest individual problem that I felt we had was that um, it didn't necessarily have access to uh, affordable loan book funding, which, of course, the banking license solves. But there were a number of other things that I learned throughout that journey um, that, that sort of didn't necessarily have the best customer outcomes. Um, and I thought through a banking license and through mainstream credit, we could potentially solve those. And, and that is the case with the plug-in overdraft. Chris could maybe explain more about the bank itself, but that was sort of like the background to this uh, idea. Uh, I, I think it, it goes even further back in time because when I first came to this country, nearly 30 years ago, um, I, I, I faced with the thin credit dilemma. Um, there was no record and therefore I struggled to get any sort of credit from any of the banks. Um, and, I, and I obviously realized that you have to start building that when, when you're fairly young. There is no record of you in the system, so to say, and banks therefore tend to just decline you from accessing any sort of short term or any any type of credit for that matter and it's very important that you do it the right way chris have you got anything else to add more yeah on i mean I, th I think jonathan to your to your question look i'm a more traditional retail bank what, what's exciting to me is hopefully what's exciting uh, to customers you know we, we're a public fintech business we, we we're using technology to make our customers lives a lot easier and as as marco said to his personal experience coming to the uk you know i spent the last uh, six plus years of my life um, serving customers who find it difficult to be served by the traditional high street lenders. And, and here we are 
uh, as we'll explain, delivering a technology, using technology to deliver a fantastic product that makes customers' life a lot easier. And for me, that that was compelling, and that's why uh, I chose to join the team. Fantastic, thank you. So I think it'd be pertinent now if we explained the the product, uh, Finu's fintech, how it works, and who you're looking to serve with it, because it's something that a lot of people wouldn't have heard before. It's going to be a, represent a major shift in the current offering out there for certain customers. So, yes, please do explain the, the plug-in overdraft, how it works, and you know a little bit about the background and the market that it's going into, if you may. Yes. Uh, so let, let me maybe do the, the, the background first, and then I'll come to the product. So, so simply, in the UK, since 2019 and... Uh, some change in the regulations. Basically, uh, a, a number of customers now find it much harder to access an overdraft uh, from their existing personal current account provider. So to give you an idea, in 2019, there were 33 million people who had some access to some form of uh, overdraft. Today, that number is reduced by over 16.5 million. So uh, today, only 20% of new personal current accounts offer an overdraft. And so we have calculated uh, from research backed up with uh, data from various um, uh, sources, there is circa 27 million uh, people who no longer have access to an overdraft. Now, that's not our complete target audience. We, we believe that our product would have would resonate with 16.9 million people. Now, that is a massive underserved uh, sector. You, you, you also set that against the current UK economic backdrop and, you know, research from PwC and Totally Money says, you know, at at this moment in time, there is around 27 million people in the UK who are uh, underserved. And uh, we see a great opportunity to give customers who are underserved some financial choice. Uh, And that's by using technology, in particular, open banking, to provide a world-first plug-in overdraft. And what that simply does is we use open banking to connect to your personal current account, of course, with the customer's consent. We then provide a overdraft uh, and the customer can configure that overdraft to top up uh, the current account as they need in exactly the same way as a traditional overdraft would work. And of course, when they've got sufficient funds in the account, it would pay off the overdraft so that they don't incur any interest. So, so in other words, and we and we know this has been difficult. It's the first time you can have a overdraft that is completely agnostic to which uh, personal current current account provider you have. Uh, now that is a, a choice that customers have not previously had. And we're using technology and open banking to provide that. And to your point on the research, when we went to uh, research in tw- in 2020, and we did ask a we did a popular survey, so it is uh, statistically significant. When we asked customers whether they were likely or very likely to switch, uh, 53% of customers said they were very likely to open an overdraft if they didn't have to move their uh, personal current account. And so for us, that represents 29 million people. So you know the, the numbers here are are uh, staggering in terms of the appetite 
for the product and the numbers of customers who are currently underserved and find it difficult to access a similar product. And, and that is our target audience. That's what we built the product to do. Uh, and we're really using technology to make it convenient and easy for customers to access. Thank you very much, Chris. And we're going to go into a little bit later on in the podcast what you're doing at the moment to, to push this forward. But I think before we do that, and I'm going to address this to Marco, if I may, I think it will be good to go through the process that you've had to undertake to, to get to where you are now. Of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, a company listed on London's AIM market. You've obviously been under a rigorous process with the FCA to get where you are. So, Marco, if you'd be able to talk to about the journey of, of listing the business, you know, why you chose the AIM market, why you've chose to, to list at this point in, in your journey and, and maybe go through a little bit, if, if you could, about getting the license and the significance of, of gaining that license from the FCA. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's very difficult to describe the process in a, in a sort of a short order. I, I think probably the way to describe it, I, I remember meeting um, the, uh, Anthony Thompson from Atom Bank at the Bank of England. Um, and he, he said that uh, their application, the one that you submit uh, together with the form, so it's the appendices where uh, it, it weighted 12 kilos because he had to send them uh, in, a, in a paper form at that time. All I know is that our application is around 3,800 pages long to begin with. And it's not just something that you put together on on your own there's a there's a regular communication with the regulators and um a, a bit of a negotiation so in our case that took five and a half years from start to the license it is as you said very rigorous and there's a reason for that and there's a there's a actually very good reason um because you get a you get a license to take deposits which are effectively guaranteed by the taxpayers uh, or the scheme that they put in place. So therefore, they're not just giving out these licenses willy-nilly. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think our bank license is, is the only the eighth retail banking license granted by the Prudential Regulation Authority in 120 years. I may be wrong, but uh, but somewhere around that line. So the likes of Monzo, Starling, um, do, do not come to the market, if you like, very often. Um, uh, so, so that's probably the way I would try to describe the process. Um, it was incredibly difficult for us also because we went through the, a major reform in the overdraft space, we did, which did have some implications to our pricing model. So we had a fixed price at one point. We went through a dynamic pricing. And all of these things, you have to, you have to therefore adjust your business model uh, submit new documentation. Different teams are looking into them um, uh, from both regulators. So, so we are regulated by the FCA and the PRA, as any other bank would be. Um, and, and of course, throughout that journey, there were also a whole host of hiccups as well. We, we ran out of money at one point. Um, somebody needs to cough up, and that was, of course, me in that case. Um, you have to get additional funding in between. We were very lucky to have um, Kindred Capital joining us in around 2019 as a seed investor. Um, but but uh, all I would say is um, if anybody else is thinking about setting up a bank, um, 
think twice. Uh, <laughs> it, it is not very easy. Um, and I think there are other e-money uh, companies out there, probably with much deeper pockets than we've ever had, who aren't necessarily getting through the, the process as, as quickly or as easy as they think that they would. Um, it, it is It is very, very hard. That's all I can say. You mentioned there, and you made comparisons there to Monzo and said there's only been eight banking licenses. So I, th- I think listeners would be interested in just getting a little bit of clarification in terms of the, the license that you have and how does that compare to the likes of Starling Bank and, and Monzo and what it allows you to do as a business? So the license, the permissions, et cetera, they're, they're, they're near, nearly identical. It's just we are currently under restriction in terms of deposit-taking activity. So when, when somebody gets the, the first license uh, or gets the license first, it tends to be or you, you're authorised with restriction. So we're under this restriction at the moment. And Chris could maybe explain a little bit more about what have we done during that first half of our 12-month, this typical 12-month period that you are in this um, restriction. Um, and, and then at the end of this mobilization, as it's called, um, you apply for a variation to your permission, i.e. we're ready now to lift uh, the restriction. Typically, um, although there's a lot of other granular details that you also have to meet, but fundamentally, in my opinion, there's only, not only, but there's two major things that you have to overcome. One is that your technology needs to go through an independent audit and the board needs to sign that off, give the regulators the reassurance that technology is in place. And and, and that has started uh, in our case in, in December. But but equally, you also have to recapitalize the bank. So this is still something that we will have to do. Um, uh, this is in a quantum, uh, all in all, around £40 million that we will have to raise um, between now and exit and, and the bulk of that money tends to go towards the regulatory capital. Um, and again, quite a normal process. It's expensive to set up a bank, but but equally, um, it, it can be very rewarding. Thank you very much, Marco. So, Chris, if I could put it to you now to summarise and expand on what Marco just outlined there in terms of, you know, what's happening at Finu at the moment? You know, what, what activities are you undertaking and what are your key goals for, for the year ahead? Yeah, so uh, as Marco said, we, we are in what's known as the mobilisation period, which is the period between your licence with restriction and then your, your full banking licence. And we're a little little over halfway uh, through that process. If I was to characterise the, the, the slight shift in uh, emphasis, in the first six months of our journey, we were very much into the build, the build of the technology stack, the connection of our, an integration of our key technology components, the connection of open banking and test customer data. So building that capability in the, in the second six months, as Marco alluded to, you know, from December, in particularly January, we, we have moved to operational readiness. So we are right now, you know, we are in, sounds a bit boring, but we are in systems integration testing, user acceptance testing, non-functional testing. So we're really uh, making sure that our technology and our data uh, works in the way it's intended so that we can bring this uh, great product uh, to market in the timescales required. Now, there are lots of other things that go on around that, uh, but that that's the shift in emphasis. We've moved from the build 
to the readiness. And of course, um, we're also busy talking to uh, investors and partners around uh, how we take this product to market. Thank you very much, Chris. Now, the, the next question I'll, I'll leave open to either one of you. And it's, you know, we've obviously mentioned the banking license there, but you describe yourself as a, as a fintech group rather than a bank. Of course, you've got, you're, you're in the process of, of getting a full banking license. But what drives you to describe yourself as a fintech group as opposed to a, to a bank at this stage? And may, and may that change in the future? Yeah, so so, so we, we're a fintech group that includes a bank, and that's because there's there's two parts to our uh, our strategy and two revenue generating businesses. We we're using technology to bring a plug in overdraft, you know, the world first plug in overdraft to the market, and and in effect, the first client is Finu Bank. Now. We believe customers in the UK will clearly benefit from that technology and that product and Finu Bank's capability here in the UK. Longer term, we have the aspiration that delivering a, a great product and a great technology solution has other benefits, potentially in other markets, in other geographies. And so the ability to license or white label our technology capability for, for other partners is also a considerable opportunity for us. And there's, I won't name names, but there, are, there have been similar models deployed uh, across the globe. But yeah, we, we believe we'll de- deliver a great technology solution and a great product for customers here in the UK. But beyond that, there's the opportunity to export some of that capability to other markets. Thank you. So... I really just want to go back now and and maybe speak a little bit more about the the market because Marco, you did allude to you know some of the competitors out there which are attracting multi billion pound valuations. That you know some of these competitors are, are obviously still private, but you're going to be operating in a in a similar market. Now, how do you see? Finu developing and, and what's the key market opportunity? Now we we discussed that the sixteen point nine target markets, and we've obviously looked at the changes within overdrafts in in recent years. But you know, for Finu, what is the real opportunity? And maybe speak if you could a little bit about how you fit in with existing banks and how people would actually come about to to use Finno and, and that major opportunity there to provide an alternative to you know, buy now, pay later as well, because that's something that I think is quite interesting in researching this, that you're providing an alternative to to something that could be quite detrimental uh, for, for some consumers. Yeah, I mean, first of all, our, our so-called base model is based on us acquiring customers without any collaboration with any of the existing players in the market but it is obviously quite logical that um, we're eyeing for such collaboration opportunities with especially with other banks um, who, who may have for instance cut off uh, x many number uh, number of their customers of accessing either unarranged or arranged overdraft um, and and they're sort of aware that the, the, the waterbed effect that, as Andrew Bailey calls it, or the whack-a-mole effect, that, uh, as I would call it, uh, means in practice that 
when, when a product is taken out from the market, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, the credit need disappears. It, it just pops up in the other parts of the market. And this is kind of referral to buy now, pay later. There are a number of other uh, alternatives, of course, out there as well. The, the FCA research and some academic research suggests that a number of these products have quite severe adverse effects on, on credit files for various different reasons. And, and, and this is maybe an opportunity for us to sort of come in between that where I think banks have a technical or some of the incumbent banks may have a technical problem now when they're effectively not giving a product to their customers who've used it before and then they go elsewhere and then because the deterioration of their credit files, now they have a problem with their sort of core products, such as mortgage. So they could have um, underwriting or risk policies that prevent them from underwriting, say, a new mortgage application because of this sort of flow that has happened. And when we're not stealing necessarily that customer, we're just providing something that they're not providing. So far, we've been perceived quite positively by the industry. And I think that's where there's a massive opportunity. But like I said, it's not, it's not, we're not basing our business model on that. That'll be, a, of course, a very welcomed upside uh, opportunity for us. Yes, I mean, I think that point there is worth revisiting. It's that open banking element that you have a service that can work in conjunction with existing banks. So they're not seen as competitors. You're seen as a additional service. So you mentioned there that, of course, it's been relatively well received by the the market so far. So, I mean, when you're planning your, your launch of your product, it would probably be interesting to hear a little bit about how you plan to, to go to market because you've got a massive addressable market there and, you know, a huge amount of people to get this message out to. So it may be interesting to hear about how you you present Finu to the consumer when you get started. Chris, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I was going to say, shall, shall I pick? So, so I think a number of things. I think the first thing, uh, Jonathan, so you said is, is given the, uh, the huge number of underserved customers, we do, we do feel that the, the product will attract a degree of influencer financial commentators interest because you know it is a brand it's a world first product in a in a sector at the moment that is massively underserved that then of course will be supported by an integrated marketing plan so uh, some selected above the line uh you know your, your typical sort of poster media type um uh, advertising activity but then a lot of it is through um your search, you know, your your typical digital price per click uh, marketing, which will lead you to our uh, website or to a landing site where you can download the app and start the journey. So the, the, the idea is we appeal to customers, make the product very simple to understand and simple uh, is, is a key word. And actually then customers feel compelled to start the journey um, to maybe build on an example you, you mentioned earlier. It's also... Um, important to recognize we have built our customer journey to make life as easy as as possible for customers to make an informed decision and uh, access the product uh, simply so by using open banking we, we may look like we have a similar customer onboarding journey to other digital banks so typically you provide some personal information it takes three minutes the difference is at the end of the three minutes we actually provide you with a loan 
And, and that is because we've used open banking and the customer's consent to provide something that is tailored to their requirements. Um, and so that that is a, a big uh, difference in what we're doing. So, yeah, integrated marketing campaign, encourage people to download the app and start the journey, use open banking to remove friction uh, for the customer and actually give them, a, give them a loan or access to an overdraft uh, in the shortest possible time. And I think, Jonathan, if I may just quickly add to that, of course, then of course. the technology side, uh, the, as Chris said earlier, I mean, the sort of go-to-market, uh, of course, it's slower. You, this is not a retail offering. That's that's to other banks and so on. And those processes take a long time. But once the technology has been audited and effectively it, it will be in production in the UK, then, of course, it's logical for us to start those discussions with uh, other players in in various jurisdictions, of course, and 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 then the question is, which part or is it the whole proposition that you would be interested in? Um, somebody could be saying, "Well, I, I like everything what you're doing," or somebody could be saying, "Well, I, I only like your underwriting model. Maybe I could," um, or maybe somebody says, I, "Can I launch the plug-in overdraft in my country?" But I think from a, from investor perspective overall, coming back to your I think your earlier question, I probably missed that. Um, I think you asked about the rational as well. Why why are we you know why did we do this and so on? Um, the, the thinking is and was and has always been that to do a listing at this early stage could be a very exciting journey for any retail investor to come on board because I think today's market cap is around 37 million. And if you if you think of the Monzos and Starlings of this world, of course, they're much, much further advanced than, than what we are. But this could be a potentially an interesting opportunity for somebody to come along at this early stage. Um, we still have to deliver a lot, of course, but the upside potential is there, according to research that's been published by Pamia Gordon and, and SP Angel. Yes, I mean that that's something that when I was looking into Finu Marco, that you've obviously got the Monzos and Revoluts of this world with multi-billion pound valuations at this point in time. Of course they're a little bit further along their journey than than Finu. But what's particularly interesting is these companies have done different different raises and of course people have been able to get involved through their crowdfunding raises and such like. But they're not listed and there's no real secondary market for them. You know, this is this is something that's highly liquid. Uh, people are able to buy and sell shares freely in a company which has the potential to be taking some of that market uh, that these that these uh, you know massive fintechs uh, are operating. So that's that's quite an interesting point that I've I've found um, from looking into Finu. But I think to finish off now. Of course, it's a massive undertaking, as we, we spoke about, gaining the license from the PRA and the FCA. And to do this, this is something that's very much driven by the people that are involved in the company. Now, this isn't something that can be done by by anyone. This needs a huge amount of experience. So maybe, you know, Chris or, or, or Marco, could you talk a little bit about the people, you know, who's on the board, the executives, their experience and, and what they have in the locker to really drive Finu forwards and, and meet your goals. Yeah, definitely, Jonathan. So um, 
it, it won't you know it won't surprise you we've we've built capability as we've been mobilizing uh, uh, the business and and that comes from a diverse set of backgrounds and experiences but make sure in particular in the bank that we have the types of capabilities which would give people comfort around our competency so to give you some ideas you know I come with whatever 25 years experience in retail banking and consumer finance that that's all I've done our CFO Charles uh, comes from a a number of financial services organizations but most recently joined from Clear Bank you know another relatively new startup so brings some slightly different experience our CRO our CRO has worked across oh, sorry our chief risk officer has worked across various large-scale banks, as well as uh, smaller boutique businesses. Uh, we've got people who've worked for Tier 1, you know, the likes of your high street lenders. Um, so, so and, and then we've also got people who've worked for technology businesses. So it, it's about the, the depth and breadth of skills in the executive uh, team. We've probably, um, without wishing to do them a disservice, got 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 a little more grey hair than perhaps some people might imagine for a, a startup bank, but that's because we've looked to build the, the correct uh, experience. And from a board point of view, well, a, a number of the board directors have uh, been on the journey, uh, well, I've been on the journey since very early on. But, you know, the board's led by uh, David Hobton, you know, a, a sort of experienced 40-year-plus uh, experienced banker and regulator. I've been working at Santander and indeed the Bank of England, and then he's supported by three independent non-executives, again, with some diverse uh, skill sets against across financial services and, and non-financial services. So that's to give us the necessary independence and governance of a, of a business that's in a, you know, a startup phase. So, yeah, um, uh, some great capability that we built out. And of course, we are building a, a team from uh, from scratch. So, you know, by the end of the year, we'll, we'll have another 44 colleagues join the business to make sure we can serve our customers in the way that we, uh, in the way we desire. I could maybe tell you a story here um, in relation to one person that you didn't mention, which is Martin Stewart, who's a board advisor. So M M Martin used to be the director of the new bank startup unit at, at the Bank of England, the Prudential Regulation Authority. Um, and, and he was the supervisor director of 600 banks and building societies. Um, I think he was in that role for about eight years. <clears throat> I met him at the Bank of England in, in one of those invitation-only seminars for prospective new startups who, who were looking or had had the first initial meetings with, with the unit. Um, he, he announced there that uh, he'll be leaving the organization or the bank um, in, in some coming months and came for the first coffee break. I obviously went to talk to him and <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the naturally thinking, you know, maybe there could be a way for us to try to get him somehow involved. He took his time. It took a long time and he really went through the then current business plan. And he was, I think it was actually Martin who suggested the name Plugin Overdraft once he got involved. So by way of example, he's been involved with us for four years now since he left the the bank. Um, and uh, out of, I think, around 30 new banks in total, including all banks that have been authorized by the new bank startup unit, if I'm not mistaken, Martin has 
approved 17 of them, including Monzo and Starling and Oak North, Atom and so on. So quite important to have these types of people involved because they're putting their face and name and reputation uh, also on the line. And uh, don't want to quote him on this, but but I've heard him talk about us um, in, in, a, in a sort of very positive way is one of the most uh, innovative banking models that I've seen in my life sort of a thing. And, and uh, it's, ver- it's very, very important uh, that, and this is what Martin's also been saying throughout the years, that the uniqueness here is that we actually build that board at the very beginning. So that board, as Chris said, have been involved with the exception of the executives, has, has been involved in good part of five years now. So it's very, very important for the regulators to understand that there's an independence, there's good governance, and it's effective as well, and not just a one-man band or you know a couple of guys thinking oh, I'll set up a new bank. Yeah, that's a fascinating point you make there, Marco. You know, very substantial board and and the stage that they've come in on on your journey is particularly interesting as well. So I did say that was the last point, but this is going to be the very last point, and so I'm going to ask both of you this. Maybe if you give two examples each, I'm going to ask you, you know, for potential investors that are looking at Finu and looking at the year ahead, if I could get a couple of things from each of you, which you think are the most exciting things for them to keep an eye out for going forward for the rest of 2023. Shall I go first, Marco? Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> give him a bit of time to think about it. So for me, uh, two 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 things. Uh, we will launch before we formally uh, launch. We will carry out some friends and family testing to make sure our product is uh, fit for purpose, and that'll be the first time that people will see um, uh, the product in a in a live environment. Now, okay, it'll be selective, but but that's the sort of proof in the pudding. Uh, the second thing then is clearly the exciting stage when we are advertising and recruiting customers, and that should be post July 2023, subject to obviously all the necessary regulatory approvals and capital. And that's where we really start to attract a degree of media interest, a degree of consumer interest, and a take up of the product. And, and for me, you know, the most exciting part about this is where customers we can help customers who really do need and can benefit from our very simple product um, and, you know, actually start to help with financial inclusion and offering a product to those people who are currently underserved. And that's, that's what drives us. And that's the bit I'm looking forward to making the biggest difference about. Uh, um, Thank you very much, Chris and Marco. I'm a little bit more candid than that. Um, I'm not necessarily going to talk about my, my future or my, what I think will, will happen or, what I'm looking forward to simply because we are publicly listed as such. And I know Chris is talking about things that are already in the public domain to some extent. I, I'd um, I, I'd uh, sort of go back a little bit and look at, I for retail investors in particular, I'd say, well, have a look what's out there, investigate, do your research. So by way of example, both Chris and I, so we, we put nearly one and a half million pounds, our, our own money, when we listed and we paid 20 pension share. That was last summer. We've now put a lot of money into the company, developed things. Well, the share price is what it is. 
Um, the second point is about the research. I think is fascinating to read. Uh, SB Angel's initiation was about 44 pages. It's absolutely compelling. And they've drawn a lot of comparisons. Uh, these comparisons are more to the private market, the likes of Montel, Starling, Revolut, N26, and so on, the different milestones and so on. And equally, Pamir Gordon released their research um, in January, um, a couple of weeks ago, basically. And uh, and, and they're, they're also making quite interesting forecasts. We, 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 we haven't published any forecasts ourselves, but it's interesting how they see the market, sort of where do we fit and so on. And they, therefore, those are the probably good milestones to look at, that how close are they with their views of the development of the company and what it needs to done and so on. But uh, let, let's see. Um, I'll, I'll leave it to that. Yes, and I would urge anybody, if you can get access to it, to have a look at those notes from SB Angel as well as Pamela Gulen. Very interesting comparisons there, and, and the valuations are particularly compelling. So if you can get access to those, do do check those out. So, Chris and Marco, thank you much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. So just as a final note to listeners, there's obviously a lot going on at Finu, and then we're going to be holding another presentation in March where we'll be able to go through a little bit more about the business. I think Marco and Chris are going to be joining us for that. So do keep an eye out on the events section on the UK Investor Magazine website and get yourself signed up to that when it's available. And as always, do check out the notes to the podcast. There'll be a link through to Finu's website. We'll be able to find out some more information. So once more, Marco and Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember all investment involves risk. 